Titus chapter 3, 3 through 8. It's a very short book. I don't know that we've spent a lot of time in it. Personally, I hope we have. The central theme of Titus is uh, is really about uh, us becoming effective in in leadership roles and the necessity of being self-disciplined, responsible, and uh, living examples uh, of our faith. Now, in the last chapter, chapter 3, there's a... uh, an incredible nugget that, uh, that Paul leaves us, starting in verse uh, 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of our righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things to those that you have, who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Thanks, Wayne. Would you bow with me, please? Lord, we pray that today as we look at a portion of Scripture... And as we just think about things having to do with what it means to be Christian, we pray you'd bless us. Open our hearts and open our minds to the things that I'm going to share. Father, help me do this in a way that glorifies you. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen. One of the mixed blessings in our world today is the privilege we have of being able to witness far-off events firsthand through the media. As you know, we have seen this in the last week with the earthquake in Haiti. On the one hand, it's helpful for us to see the devastation and to see with our eyes their suffering so that we can empathize and be moved to help. On the other hand, it is not easy to witness the anguish of others, knowing that for most of the people of Haiti, you and I are pretty much helpless. And we know that we can give money, we can pray. We can encourage those who maybe have lost loved ones there. But it's a little bit difficult for us to do a lot from here. And that's hard on us. We sometimes live almost vicariously the things that we see going on in another place. Well, 18 years ago, this last week, on January 13, 1982, some of you are going to remember this, a wonderful thing happened for some survivors from Air Florida Flight 90 that took off from Washington, D.C. As I said, it was January 13th. It was snowy. It was icy. It was cold. And the ice on the wings of this plane caused the plane to crash into the 14th Street Bridge in Washington, D.C. not long after takeoff. So it just took off, started to go down immediately. And as it started to go down into the Potomac River, unlike the 
more recent aircraft that landed on the Hudson, in which it was quite a, a good event in many ways because there were so many people saved. In this case, uh, it hit the bridge first and then went down into the river, and the conditions uh, were terrible. And because of the media, because we could see so easily what was there, we got to watch, if you were like me, an event which was really uh, an amazing. It's one of the most heroic things I've ever witnessed. There were 79 people aboard Flight 90, 73 of which died in the river from the impact alone. But after the plane impacted the bridge and went into the river, there were six passengers who were found clinging to the tailpiece of the plane that was still floating on top of the river. Well, with news crews and passers-by looking on who were standing on the bridge, there soon arrived a U.S. Parks police helicopter. And through the snow that was coming down and the icy conditions, the wind and everything else that was there, the crew members from this helicopter started to lower a rope down to those six individuals who were clinging to the tailpiece of this plane. One of the individuals was almost attached. He couldn't quite get loose from the plane, but he was just able to reach out and to grab the rope and to pull it back. And so he reached out and grabbed the rope and he pulled it in and he handed it to one of the other persons who grabbed the rope. And then the helicopter took off and kind of dragged this person across the top of the river over to the shore. And that person let go of the rope. There were some rescuers there who grabbed that person, pulled him onto shore, and then the helicopter went back for another person. So the helicopter got close again to the tailpiece. The same individual grabbed the rope again, reached out, grabbed the rope, pulled it over, gave it to another individual, and this person also was dragged across the river over to the shoreline. So that's happened twice now. Two people saved over on the shoreline out of the six. Again, the helicopter went back to the tailpiece uh, uh, that was still floating in the river. The individual grabbed the rope pulled it over. This time they had lowered two ropes and they could actually have three people cling to those two ropes. So three people who were there next to the tailpiece grabbed onto that rope and started going across the river. Because it was so cold and because uh, they were so exhausted uh, trying to just stay alive in the river, one of them actually fell back into the river as they were going across. So the helicopter took two uh, gentlemen and took them across uh, to the shoreline again and, and left them with the rescuers. And then they went back to the position where a, it was a woman who had fallen back into the river. She was now separated from the fuselage halfway between the plane and the shore, and she's in the middle of the river. So the plane or the uh, helicopter lowered down to where she was, and they actually, she couldn't hold on to the rope any longer. That's why she fell is because her hands were so cold she couldn't couldn't uh, remain on the rope and so they lowered right down to the point where the skids of the helicopter actually at one point went under the water like just for a short brief period one of the guys that was in the helicopter got out onto the skid of the helicopter reached out and grabbed her clothing and pulled her up onto the skid they lifted off the river and they took her over and dropped her off on the shoreline so now they've got five people that out of the six who have been saved and they're now over uh, to safety on the shoreline. So the helicopter picks up again and goes back to get the sixth individual and he's gone. And the tailpiece is gone. And he drowned. His name was Arland D. Williams Jr., 46-year-old bank examiner from Atlanta 
who worked with the Federal Reserve Bank. The coroner later determined, when they recovered all the bodies, that Williams was the only passenger recovered from the river whose body revealed that he had died from drowning rather than the impact of injuries suffered during the crash. And he was the fellow who reached out three times and pulled the rope in and let someone else take it. What does one say in response to that kind of heroism? What does one say if you're one of the survivors handed the rope by Arlen Williams? I can remember watching the newscast of that event. I was two months away from taking my first position in ministry. And I remember thinking that there was a substantial parallel between what I was witnessing on television in the life of Arlen Williams and what he did for those five survivors and what Jesus had done for me. I was just beginning to drown in the icy waters of my own life in 1973 when I was invited to go to a Bible camp. I was just beginning to take off on a life that would not have taken me in a pleasant direction. And I can remember, like it was yesterday, I've told you this story before, walking up toward the boys' cabins of that camp on about Wednesday of Bible camp week, not knowing Jesus, not understanding why in the world I was there, and saying to all my buddies, this is crazy. Here we are at this Bible camp for which I've paid $25 of my own money to spend a week here. And we're in Bible classes all day. And all the things that I thought we would do at this Bible camp, instead we're listening to sermons and having to sing hymns that I don't know. And I was not impressed. That was Wednesday morning. By Thursday night, I had completely given my heart to Jesus Christ. And what changed me was that I had heard and I understood the most wonderful story that I've ever heard. That story starts out with the lostness of human beings. It starts with the tragedy of human existence. It starts with all of us understanding just how badly it is that we need Jesus. You know, one of the things that strikes me about this whole Haiti situation, like it is such a tragedy. Perhaps 100,000 people are dead. But one of the things which is, for me at least, as disconcerting as that, is the fact that there is so much poverty and so much pain and so much tragedy. And then, in the midst of people in that kind of pain and that kind of tragedy, there are looters. There are people who are stealing things from others. 
If you need water and somebody else has it, you may well just go and take it from the one who has it. If you need food and someone else has it, you may be the one who goes and takes it. And if you happen to own a gas station and you have some gasoline, you'll charge $50 a gallon for gasoline to people who are already crushed. And do you know why people will do that? Because they are just like you and me. Because in the lostness of our humanity, because of who we are without God in our lives, that is exactly the depths to which we'll go. That's the human condition. That's why we need Jesus. Is it not? And so there's a sense in which it doesn't surprise me that people would be doing that in such horrible circumstances. It's almost as if I would expect that because that is, in a sense, exactly who we are. Now, my personal tragedy in all of that is that unfortunately, and I would love to say something different here, but I oh, I don't know what I would do were I there. If, if it was me that was hungry, if I was the one who needed water, what would I do? What if I was the one who owned the gas station? I'd like to think that I wouldn't scalp people like that. I'd like to think that I wouldn't steal anybody's water. But you know what? We are a sordid bunch when we find ourselves in trials. We have the capacity to do some pretty nasty things. That's why Paul can say things like this. Are we any better? Are we any better? Not at all. As it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Those are the kinds of people who live in Haiti. Those are the kinds of people who live in Canada. Those are the kinds of people who live in Calgary. They live on my street. They live in my house. And that's who lives in your house. I don't know if you heard this week the trouble that Pat Robertson, televangelist from the United States, got himself in trouble this week. The fellow who ran for president a few years ago made the claim this week that perhaps the reason that Haiti experienced the earthquake that it did is because there's so much voodoo there, because it's such a godless nation, because people don't honor God there. Maybe God sent them this earthquake. I'm not impressed, Pat. I'm thinking 
that there are some other places in the world that deserve some earthquakes. Not just Haiti. I'm thinking that there are some other places in the world where there are people who don't strive to be what God wants them to be. I'm not sure that Haiti, based on Paul's words, is any more justified in receiving the earthquake than my street is. And so the gospel story is clear, brothers and sisters. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, following the ways of the world and the spirit at work that is disobedient. At just the right time, it says, when we were all powerless. And that means powerless to overcome our own sins. Christ died for the ungodly ones. So I think God would have had a hard choice. If he decides that he wants to send an earthquake to teach somebody a lesson, whom does he choose? What country will he say, this is the one today? Because they are sinful. I think it would be a hard choice. I don't know how he'd do it. Does he choose my house? Does he choose yours? The guy across the street? It'd be a hard choice because sinfulness is the universal truism. It's the one common denominator of humanity. We deserve death, my friends. But God, but God chooses to do something different. And so, as Wayne read a little while ago, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and desires. Let's put this up if we could. Keith, could we put that scripture up? Thank you very much. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, because there were not many, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And look at the bottom. Because you read that verse and you think, well, that's the gospel. We know the gospel. We understand that. We were sinners. We needed Jesus. That's what you've read, Kelly. Yes, but look at the bottom. And I want you to stress these things. I don't know if you can see that very well with the red. I want you to stress these things so that those who've trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Do you see that? This says that I was in terrible shape. There was no chance for me that God saved me through Jesus despite the fact that there was absolutely no chance and that now in response to what it is that God has done, I have something I can do. And what he says is, do good. Do the good thing. Do the good thing in response to the good news of Jesus. 
Now, for several weeks now, we've been talking a bit about sharing. Sharing specifically the gospel with other people. And the need for us to recognize the call on the church and in our own lives to talk to other people about Jesus. Is there anything? Is there anything so motivating? Is there anything that should fill us with the desire to talk to other people about Jesus like what it is that we have received in Christ? I was telling the class this morning in the Bible class, sometimes when I start talking about talking to other people about Jesus and I want to encourage the church to share with others the gospel, people will say, well, why do you have to talk about this in such guilt-producing terms? This is just another guilt trip. You come and tell us we're not sharing the gospel with people and we need to. Isn't that just guilt-producing? Well, you can take it that way if you want, but that's not what is intended here. Because all I've done is point out to us the incredible privilege that is ours. The opportunity that is given to us through Christ to not only receive the gospel, the blessing of life that is in him, but then to have the opportunity to say to somebody else, like me, you too can hear of Jesus and come to new life in him. We, brothers and sisters, have that chance to share with other people what it means to live a new life in Jesus Christ. You had that chance, and I had that chance. This is not a guilt trip. This is the offering of a blessing, a privilege for us to be able to share with other people the good news about Jesus. Is it not good news? Is it not a great blessing? And if we have a chance to say to somebody, here is some great news, then we should seize that opportunity. We should recognize the privilege and the blessing that is ours. Is it not a privilege to serve Jesus Christ, church? Is that not a blessing? Is it always a burden for us to serve Jesus? If we don't do it, does somebody have to come and stir us up and make us feel guilty? in order to talk to someone else about the good news of Jesus and what Christ has done for us through the gospel? No. Because he has done something so wonderful. I was lost, and now I have been found. I was dead in my transgressions and sins, walking in the ways of the world and following the principalities and powers of this world, Paul says in Ephesians 2, and Jesus came and set me free. And through his grace, I have been freed from my sins, able to walk with him and to live eternal life. And it's not just something I receive at the end when I die, it's something I get right here, right now in Christ. And the fullness of Jesus through the presence of the Spirit in my life is here right now if I make myself available to Jesus. That's great news. Like, that is fantastic news. And we have the privilege and the opportunity of sharing that with others. There's a passage in Luke 19, verse 38. The scene is that Jesus is entering the city. And he's coming into Jerusalem as the Messiah. And the people recognize that he is Messiah. They know who he is. 
And so as he comes into the city, he's riding on a donkey, just the way that Solomon rode on a donkey as he was anointed king. And he's coming into the city and people begin to recognize who he is. And so they start praising him. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then some of the Pharisees, the Bible says, in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And so he's the king coming into the city. The people are saying, here comes the king. And the Pharisees say, Jesus, tell them to stop calling you king. Tell them they can't be making that proclamation about you. And Jesus says, if they keep quiet, the rocks will cry out. Why? Why? Why will the rocks cry out if the people are quiet? Because of the great news. Because of the blessing. Because this is the most fantastic message the world has ever heard. Jesus says, I'm bringing my kingdom. And it's so glorious and so wonderful for humankind that if the people are quiet about it, all of creation will scream it out. That he is king and that he's glorious and that he's working in our lives to redeem us for God. So we can we can keep quiet if we want. But I urge you to have the capacity within yourselves to voice what the rocks want to voice. That Jesus is Lord and he has redeemed us. And for this lost people and this lost culture in which we find ourselves, there's a great message of hope. And he has redeemed us, giving us the opportunity and the privilege to share it with others. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise you and we thank you for this great blessing and privilege we have of being able to share the good news. Father, help us not to share Jesus, to share you out of guilt, but out of our joy. Make it flow from us. Father, there are people here this week who will be in contact with others who don't know you. Help their joy to overflow. Let them cry out about what you have done. Help us to respond with the doing of the good to which your gospel calls us. We praise you again for this wonderful, rich blessing of being both the redeemed and those who have the privilege to proclaim the redemption that is in Christ. It's through him that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.